Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, find in yours Revelation chapter 20, the 20th chapter in the Revelation. Do you know what the world will desperately need at the end of the seven-year tribulation? And let me add to that thought. Do you know what the world has so desperately needed since Genesis chapter 3 when sin, death, and evil entered this world? The world has always desperately needed Revelation 20 verses 1 through 4. Allow me to read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What the world desperately needs at the end of the seven-year tribulation and what the world has so desperately needed since Genesis 3 when sin, death, and evil entered this world is for the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, to be bound for a thousand years and thrown into the abyss so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. This morning, we begin our series on the Millennial Kingdom. If you were paying careful attention, you may have noticed the words thousand years three times in those four verses. The Latin word mele means 1,000. This is why many Christians know this time period as the millennial kingdom. The Bible, however, was not written in Latin. The word for thousand is the word kilioi. Perhaps a more accurate description might be the kilioi kingdom. I want you to imagine a world for 1,000 years filled with perfect righteousness, perfect goodness, a world with no injustice, and where everyone is treated the way God wants man to be treated. Well, this will require two things. Number one, the devil must be bound, and number two, Jesus must literally come to this world to rule and reign for the same 1,000 years he is bound. Many Bible interpreters have rejected the idea that there will be a reign of Christ on earth for a literal thousand years after his second coming. This morning, I have only one objective with our very first lesson, and that is to briefly introduce us to three viewpoints, post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism. Let's begin with post-millennialism. The word post means after. Postmillennialism teaches Jesus Christ comes after the 1,000 years, after. The 1,000 years for them is an optimistic view that Christ will reign spiritually on earth through the work of the church and the preaching of the gospel, and then he will come. Ask yourself, does the Bible teach that the church, after preaching the gospel, 
for 1,000 years will be the instrument that Jesus will use to bring perfect righteousness, perfect goodness, no injustice to this world? I ask that question because the church has existed for 2,000 years. And if ever there was a church that could begin this 1,000-year period of post-millennialism, it has to be the church in the book of Acts. Now, why do I say that? Well, for starters, the Bible teaches the church will apostatize in the last days. We ought to anticipate the church getting worse and worse, not better and better. Now, the church in the book of Acts had indisputable, indisputable miracles, unlike the counterfeit miracles of our era. They had unequaled power in preaching, thousands saved in one day. Unmatched unity, unmatched love, unmatched generosity, not only with themselves, but the world around them. Point being, if ever there was a church that would begin the time clock to tick those 1,000 years into existence, it would have to be that church. Now get this, if it began with them 2,000 years ago, Jesus is 1,000 years too late in coming. Because remember, post-millennialism teaches that the church will reign on this earth for a 1,000 years, then Jesus comes. A second major view is amillennialism, which denies that there is any literal millennium or reign of Christ on earth at all. Uh, the letter A in amillennialism is a negative prefix, meaning no millennium. Uh, they would say the number 1,000 is not to be taken literally and that the church has been living in the millennium since the church began. Amillennialism teaches that the reign of Christ is reduced to a spiritual reign in the hearts of believers. In other words, amillennialism equates reigning and ruling to be what takes place in a person individually, not globally. Now, both amillennialists and postmillennialists have one thing in common. They teach that Satan has been bound ever since Jesus defeated him at the cross. Let me ask you a question. Does anyone feel like the devil is bound today? Was he bound even at the cross? And one more question. If his being bound finds its definition in verse 3, what definition? So that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Ask yourself, do you sense that the nations are deceived or not deceived? Because the more I look at our world, the more I see a deceived world. Amillennialists and postmillennialists teach he can no longer deceive the nations and keep them from learning God's gospel, God's truth. Is that true? Is that true according to the scriptures? Because if it is, listen to what Paul wrote after the cross. He not only wrote it after the cross, he wrote it after the ascension of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection and ascension. 2 Corinthians 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And forget about the nations. We, the church, can't even say he is bound. After the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, why then, in Acts 5 and 3, was the devil able to plant lying hypocrites, Ananias and Sapphira, in the church if he's bound? Why does he scheme against believers, 2 Corinthians 2 and 11, if he's bound? 
Why does it even matter that he disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive people? 2 Corinthians 11 and 14 and attacks believers, Ephesians 4 and 27, if he is bound. If he is bound, why must he be resisted, James 4 and 7? Why does he hinder those of us in ministry, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 18? And why does he lead believers astray, 1 Timothy 5 and 15, if he is bound? Does anyone this morning feel like the devil is bound? Because I don't. And I think I have plenty of evidence to prove the devil is alive and well in this world. Both the amillennial and postmillennial views interpret Revelation 20, now get this, in a non-literal sense. But I want you to listen carefully to what an amillennialist by the name of Anthe Hokema writes, if you take it literally. Listen to what he says. Let us assume, for example, that the book of the Revelation is to be interpreted in an exclusively futuristic sense. Let us further assume that what is presented in Revelation 20 must necessarily follow in chronological order what was described in chapter 19. He then says, we are then virtually, listen, compelled to believe that the 1,000-year reign depicted in Revelation 20 and 4 must come after the return of Christ described in 19 and 11. Do you hear what this amillennialist is saying? If you take the revelation chronologically and literally in Revelation 19 and 20, you must be a pre-millennialist. He is saying if we interpret the revelation literally and chronologically, we are compelled to believe that the 1,000-year reign depicted in Revelation 20 and 4 must come after the return of Christ to describe, described in Revelation 19 and 11. Let me just be crystal clear. I'm a premillennialist. I believe in premillennialism, and here's why. Because the Bible way too many times and way too many places unfolds this chronology for me not to take it literally. Let's talk about premillennialism. The word pre means before. Jesus comes before Revelation 19. Before what? Before the thousand-year reign, Revelation 20. That's premillennialism. Now, let me ask you this question. Does it even matter? You know, there's a lot of doctrines where Christians disagree, and it doesn't matter. Um, I might believe in baptism by immersion. You might believe it by sprinkling. And because baptism in no way saves us, water cannot save, only the blood of Jesus. Now, you and I can differ on an issue like baptism. But, but does it matter if I'm a post-mill, on-mill, or pre-mill? Does that matter? Here's what we're going to learn. If post-millennialism and amillennialism are true, God is a liar. What does the Bible teach? What does God want us to believe is true? Well, turn to Acts 1 and 3. Turn to Acts 1 and 3. Acts 1 and 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, why did I draw our attention to that verse? Those words, our series, the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of God. 
Revelation 11 and 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. John is looking forward in Revelation 11 and 15 to Revelation 20. He has to be because Revelation 11, when he says that, we're still in 1 John 5 and 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ in Revelation 20. When Jesus comes in Revelation 19, literally, physically, earthly, to rule and reign, Revelation 20 and 4, for a thousand years. But in the meantime, the devil is in control. In Revelation 20, the evil one will be bound and Jesus will rule his kingdom for 1,000 years. And now we add another word to our thoughts. The kingdom. The millennial kingdom. Drop down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Keep that word restoring in your memories. And one more word, Israel. Do you know what both amillennial and postmillennial views have in common? They have no room in their theology for Israel. Now notice verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud receiving him out of their sight. Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1. Now, why did I place that verse alongside the kingdom being restored to Israel? Turn to Acts 3. As you turn to Acts 3, I want to first direct us to the audience that Peter is speaking to in verse 12. So find the words in verse 12. Men of Israel. Israel is our audience. Now drop down as I read verses 19 through 21. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time whom heaven must receive. When did heaven receive Jesus? Well, back in Acts 1 and 9, we read he was lifted up. Do you see the second coming? Verse 20, that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Now follow the chronology. Remember, postmillennialists and amillennialists give no credence or value to chronology. The Bible does. The chronology is first, heaven must receive him until, until what? The men of Israel repent, verse 19. Heaven will receive Jesus until Israel repents. Then what? Verse 19, the times of refreshing will come. And how does verse 21 describe this time of refreshing, the period of restoration? I, I should back up for a moment and, and say that when Israel repents, Jesus will be sent his second coming will occur. That's Revelation 19. But then what comes along with him are the times of refreshing that verse 21 describes as the period of res restoration. Now we're going to test our memories. What word did I ask you to remember back in Acts 1 and 6? Restoring the kingdom to Israel. 
Same word back in Acts 1. Restoring the kingdom is restoring. Now watch this. The time of refreshing. When? After Jesus comes. That's the chronology. That's the chronology of Revelation 19 and 20. That's the chronology here in Acts 3. That's the chronology in Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5 and 15. Listen, I will go away and return to my place. I will go away and return to my place. When did God return to his place? Acts 1 and 9, he was lifted up. Acts 3, heaven must receive him. Then what? Hosea 5 and 15, I will go away and return to my place. Listen, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. You know what that sounds like to me? Repentance. Acknowledging one's guilt, seeking the face of Jesus Christ for salvation is repentance. What will happen when they acknowledge their guilt and repent after Jesus returns to his place? Hosea 6, and he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. You know what I call that? The times of refreshing. Ezekiel said it would be a time of showers of blessing. Ezekiel 34 and 26, by the way, and Ezekiel 34, first Israel returns to the land during the tribulation and the second coming to save Israel follows, then the showers of blessing. Isaiah saw the kingdom as a time when God will pour water on him that is thirsty, Isaiah 44 and 3. Follow carefully with me Zechariah's chronology. In Zechariah 12 and 10, during the tribulation, we read, They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Did Israel weep? for Jesus as an only son at his first coming? No, because this is re referencing his second coming during the tribulation. But I would argue that is repentance during the tribulation. Zechariah 14, 2 and 3, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Here comes their tribulation. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled but the rest of the people will not be cut off from that city. Now watch this. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Jesus is coming. As when he fights on a day of battle, you say, why do you believe Jesus is coming? Listen to how it ends. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus taught his disciples about the tribulation and the second coming, he taught them from the Mount of Olives. When he ascended to heaven in Acts 1, he ascended from the Mount of Olives, and the angels said he would return in the same way. And when he returns, he returns to the Mount of Olives to save Israel. Then what? Zechariah 14 and 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. That's the times of refreshing. You know, when you're thirsty, what do you need to refresh yourself? Water, showers of blessing. Hosea 6, he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Ezekiel, showers of blessing. Isaiah saw the kingdom as a time when God will pour out on him that is thirsty. Now, why did I take us through Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah? Acts 3 and 21, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke, now watch this, by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times, by the mouth of Hosea, by the mouth of Ezekiel, 
by the mouth of Isaiah, by the mouth of Zechariah. We just heard from his holy prophets from ancient times, didn't we? Does it matter that we believe the tribulation is followed by the second coming, followed by the 1,000 years of showers of blessing, times of refreshing, living waters that will flow, spring rain? Does it matter if I believe in post-millennialism, amillennialism, or premillennialism? It matters if you take the word of God literally. You see, if post-millennialism and amillennialism are true, then God's word cannot be trusted because God's word paints this same chronology way too many times, not for us to take it literally. In the words of John Bright, the Bible is one book. Had we, had we to give that book a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. Premillennialism is the belief that Christ will physically return to earth, set up a throne in Jerusalem, and reign over the whole earth for a thousand years, and the devil will be bound. Does it matter? Well, think about it this way with me. If the paradise lost in the garden is never regained in the kingdom, then God is the ultimate forever loser and Satan, the ultimate forever winner. If a literal paradise is not restored, then God lost what he created. If there is not a literal millennium, God broke an unconditional land promise to Abraham. God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants forever. What land? Israel. The kingdom will be restored to Israel, and this restoration brings the times of refreshing. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, I give to you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, Genesis 17 and 8. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever, Genesis 13 and 15. Everlasting possession, descendants forever. This land promise was an unconditional promise because only God sealed it by passing through the split sacrifice while Abraham slept. I remind you, the Bible declares that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Romans 11 and 29. That was not said in the context of spiritual gifts. That was said in the context of God's gift to the nation of Israel. But this land promised to Abraham has never yet been fulfilled. But in the future, in the 1,000-year reign of Christ, Revelation 20, it will be. Without a millennium, God would be breaking an unconditional throne promise to David. God promised David that he and his descendants would reign on a throne in Israel forever. He declared in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, a descendant is coming, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It couldn't be David. David didn't have the kingdom forever. So we are talking the future. My steadfast love, he says, will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. May I ask, what Christian doesn't love the promise of everlasting eternal life? We cling to it. We believe it. We embrace it. We need it. But look, that promise means nothing if God can use the same words for Israel that he does for us and then break them. 
And the beauty of this promise is it has nothing to do with our performance, but God's faithfulness. In Psalm 89, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, speaking to David and his descendants, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of, his, of, of the heavens. Now watch this. If his children forsake my law, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. My friend, the word of God is on the line this morning. To believe in postmillennialism or amillennialism is... It leaves you not being able to trust God's word. It matters if you're post-mill, on-mill, or pre-mill. It matters if you believe in grace that saves eternally, radically. It matters if you believe in eternal life, that you also believe in what premillennialism teaches. There's a future for Israel. There's a future for that land. It will be restored to her. It will be times of blessings for her. Well, as we end our thoughts every week, we end with a gospel word. Maybe there's someone listening. Maybe there's someone who's a Christian and they neglect to be faithful in their call to bring the gospel and make disciples of others. We must teach people to repent and believe the gospel, to follow Jesus, and to become a fisher of men. The word repent means to change your mind. It means to change your mind about what you believe, who you believe, and how you behave. Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Repentance begins with believing correctly about who he is. He is the eternal son of God. He didn't become the son of God. A child was born, a son was given. Jesus is the eternal son of God who came to this world born of a virgin. Isaiah gives him a name. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. You must change your mind. This Jesus is not just a man. He's the God-man, born of a virgin. He led a sinless life, died on a cruel tree for our sins, was buried and rose again from the grave, according to the scriptures, on the third day. And he ascended to the Father's right hand, and he's coming again. You must change your mind about who Jesus is. But you must also change your mind about who you are. You have to change your mind and recognize that you can't save yourself. Even on your very best day, and I don't dispute or deny for one minute, you've had some wonderful good days. Maybe you've done some wonderful good things. But James says if you keep the whole law, 613 laws in the law, if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you are guilty of all. You know what that sounds like to me? The law demands perfection. It does. That's why Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, the law was written that the transgression might increase. What the law does is it reveals to us, I'm a lawbreaker. And as a lawbreaker, I need to be saved from the curse of the law, from violating the law. And that's where Jesus comes in. He's the only person who can save you from your sins. He's the only sacrifice that God the Father will accept on your behalf to save you from your sins. But you also must change 
your mind about how you behave. But the Christian life is not just believing, it's behaving. You see, the gospel has power. It saves us radically, dramatically, and eternally from the inside out. You know, we, we argue all the time that we're saved by grace. We neglect to remind ourselves that grace works. We are saved by grace and not by works, but grace works. It changes us. Well, that's the gospel message. That's our first lesson on the millennial kingdom. I look forward to more. I hope you join us. May God bless his word and may God bless you.